this morning. Uh, Frank is preaching Christ Central Prez, which used to be Seminole Prez, and today is their 100th anniversary celebration. He got asked to preach there as he grew up there, and so what an honor for him, um, and it's an honor for me to be here with you. And we're continuing in Romans 12 today, and as we look at Romans 12, it's a lot about love. If you see in your Bibles, it may even say something like love in action as the, uh, the heading. And anytime we, I think about love, I start to think about love songs that are in my head, right? I mean, like 90% of songs are about love, aren't they? I mean, uh, think about, I don't know, meatloaf. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that, and we still don't know what that is. Um, the Beatles, right? All you need is love. Um, love potion number nine. Love hurts. Nazareth. Watch that video. It's a great hairdos. Uh, lots of songs about love, but if we're honest, if we think about what the message is in most of those songs, we're, we're left feeling like maybe it's not very clear what love really is. It kind of reflects sort of the overall vibe of our culture, which tends to think of love as more just like the absence of violence or, or like a, uh, a tolerance. And so really, we're left agreeing with the uh, musical philosopher Hathaway, who once asked, what is love? Come on, finish it. Baby, don't hurt me. Oh, all right. Come on, let's... Tough crowd this morning. Okay. There, there we go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. So the Bible, though, if, you know, if, we, if we set aside Meatloaf and Hathaway and all those guys, the Bible actually has a very clear and very robust definition of what love really is. If we look at Romans 12, we find a definition of love that is, it is a sacrificial love. It is a love that considers others before it considers self. It is the, it is the only love that has the power to transform us. The only love that has the power to transform West Town Church. The only love that has the power to transform entire communities and even the entire world. It is the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Now I want to give you a disclaimer. As we, as we go through this passage, you might start to think, wow, this is hard. This is impossible. I, I can't do this. And I want you to understand that if, if you start to think, I've got to try to muster up the ability to love this way myself, we're going to be overwhelmed by that. That's impossible on our own. This is, a, this is a love that must come from Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about the beginning of Romans 12 and how God's plan for us is to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And the, and the idea of God's plan for us is that we would look more and more like Jesus each and every day that we follow him. So we begin to love what he loves, and we begin to love how he loves. But he initiates that. We love because he first loved us. And through us, he delivers that love to the rest of the world. So we're going to go through, I, I have seven points this morning. They are short, okay? But I have seven points seven characteristics of sacrificial love. And we're actually even going to go through them uh, as the ABCs of Christ-like love. We'll go ABC, even through H, 
That's confusing, I know, because that's eight letters, but we'll, you'll understand. You'll see. And the first thing we see about Christ-like love is it is authentic. Christ-like love is authentic. In verse 9 uh, of Romans 12, it says, Love must be sincere. Or literally, agape, love, must be unhypocritical. That's the Greek word there, unhypocritical. So, agape, love, is unconditional love. It is the love uh, with which God loves us. He does not look at us and say, if you do this, then I'll love you. He says, I love you. doesn't matter what you do. I love you. If, if it depended on what we do, we're lost. Okay? So God loves us unconditionally, and this is how we are meant to love other people. We are meant to love people without condition. So meatloaf says, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. We just have to strike the I won't do that from our vocabulary. It's not transactional. It's not conditional. We love regardless of how the other person treats us. We'll get more into that next week. But for now, we're talking about how love is also unhypocritical. Paul uses this word to say, you know, love can't wear a mask. It can't appear one way on the outside, but actually be another way on the inside. That's not how God loves us. And it's important we understand that if we know the love of Jesus Christ, we know that unconditional love, we understand that He has loved us that way, we can't then turn around and say, no, but I won't love other people that way. Jesus can love me unconditionally, but then I'm, I'm going to be conditional in how I love people. That's to be hypocritical. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you know, a, a great way to think about this um, is like the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. There's a, there's a parable that Jesus tells about how a guy is in debt to a, a powerful businessman, and he goes and he says, you know, please, will you forgive my debt? And the business, businessman says, yes, I will forgive your debt. You know, go and and be at peace. But then he goes and he goes to some other guy that owes him money and he's like, hey, you need to pay me back or I'm going to throw you in debtor's prison. And the guy's like, please have mercy. I can't pay you back. And he's like, sorry, you're going to prison. That's hypocritical. That's loving. That's knowing unconditional love but then being refusing to show that same kind of love to someone else. That is the is the absolute opposite of how love must be. Love must be authentic, sincere, genuine. And so a way to think about that is, is to say that love must desire to do and or say what benefits others. To do and or say what benefits others. Ephesians 4.29 says, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So, have you ever lied to someone because you didn't want to hurt their feelings? You know, like, you say, yes, you have a beautiful singing voice. On the inside, you're shaking your head, right? Or, you know, I, I don't know, you name it. I'm sure we've all done something like that. Why do we do that? Do we do that because we care about the other person? Or do we do that because we care about us? I think it's the latter. We 
don't want to get into that awkward conversation where we have to start to talk about why you don't have a beautiful singing voice and how maybe you shouldn't be up here singing or something like that. That's awkward. That's, that can be hurtful. That's, that's a hard conversation. And so a lot of times we lie, we tell little, little white lies to other people because we don't want to risk the conflict that's involved with speaking the truth in love, which is what we're commanded to do. If we are loving what Jesus loves and we're loving how Jesus loves, then we will be careful to ask what most benefits my neighbor. Maybe it is to say something hard, but to say it the right way, to speak the truth in love. And maybe that person doesn't like what you say, but the question is, is it beneficial for them to hear that? Is it beneficial for me sometimes to hear that I'm being too loud doing the dishes in the morning when everybody else is asleep? Yes, it's beneficial for me to hear that because I need to stop and let people sleep, right? So even though I may not like it, I need to hear it. So love is authentic. Second, Christ-like love is bold. It is bold. If we continue in verse 9, Paul says, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. In the Greek, uh, the, the word hate here is to be horrified by. It's to abhor something. And then the word for cling to is, is like to be glued to something. To, to join to something. To cleave to something. Like uh, when I played sports, I played flag football, and my coach would say, stick to that person like white on rice. That's the kind of idea here. We cling to something, to something good. And really, if you think about it, this is the call of discipleship, the call of following Jesus. Like Ephesians 4 again, Paul says, put off the old self and put on the new. It's disown your old master. Turn your back on your old master, which was sin, and now cling to your new master, which is Jesus Christ. If we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, we will, we will desire what He desires. And we will hate what He hates. We will love what He says is good. So what does God love and what does God hate? Well, let's talk about that for a second. If you look at a place like Micah 6.8, it says, what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord say is good but to act justly to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So God loves justice. God loves mercy. God loves humility. God loves kindness. He loves grace. He loves it when we care for those who are helpless. James says that pure religion is to look after widows and orphans. We care for those who are helpless. These are just a few of the things that God loves. What does God hate? It may even surprise you to hear that God hates something. Well, look at Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, that's proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So this is a little confusing. He's like, there are six things. God, wait, wait, no, actually there's seven. What, what's the deal with that? Well, look, this is a way that in Hebrew literature you would put emphasis on something. So in other words, what he's doing is he's saying, here are seven things that God hates, but I want to emphasize the last one. 
So he's like, pay closest attention to the seventh thing that I say. Bold it, underline it. And what we find is that God hates it, especially when we stir up conflict on purpose. When we enter into a situation and we're like, let me see how I can create some more drama here. God hates that. And we should hate it. We should be horrified by that, but instead I think we find we're often participating in it. I mean, that is what gossip is. Gossip is entering into a situation and stirring up conflict. And social media, man, just puts a magnifying glass on this, right? You ever go on a neighborhood Facebook page? Oh my word. We, there, there was one where people were just tearing each other apart over whether or not there should be a line in the middle of a road, like a dividing line. Tearing each other apart over something like that. As Jesus followers, we should be horrified by that. We should abhor that kind of stirring up conflict. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm saying we should be snobby about it, though. Okay? Like, the Pharisee and the tax collector, you know, how the Pharisee is over here, he's praying to God, he's like, God, I thank you that I'm not like all those sinners. And the tax collector's down here beating his breast because he's saying, just have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I am not saying we should be abhorred in such a way that we're like the Pharisee, thinking we're above all that. No, not at all. We should be abhorred because we remember what it was like to be that way. Apart from Christ, when sin was our old master, we remember what it was like to be controlled by that. And now we also remember that we're still capable of it. We're still capable of that kind of evil, even with Christ as our master, because sin still has influence on us. And so we abhor the things that God hates, knowing that only God stands in the way of us participating in those things even maybe loving those things. So we cling to what is good. We hate what is evil. We abhor what is evil. We cling to what is good. We cling first and foremost to God. To what God says. To what God loves. To what He says is good. And this is a bold love. It's a bold love because it admits, it's, it's saying that there is an objective right and wrong. There is an objective right and wrong scientifically, but also morally. Only God can determine what is right and what is wrong for us. I want to just give you a personal example of where this comes into play for me. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever taken the Myers-Briggs. Um, I'm an INFP. The F is, is your thinking or feeling, so it's how you uh, judge situations like kind of your, your go-to, how you judge situations. So I judge more based on feelings than I do based on fact, okay? And so feelings sometimes can be very overpowering for me or very overwhelming for me. I begin to think that my feelings are reality. And that's not always true. Sometimes my feelings are wrong. My feelings are subjected to the fallenness and the brokenness of this world just as much as anything else. Sometimes my feelings lie to me. And here's a great example. I go through, every once in a while I go through times, seasons, maybe it's a week, maybe it's a few weeks, 
where I feel inside like I am not a Christian. Like if I'm thinking these things and I'm living this way and I'm, how can I be? I feel depressed or I feel anxious or I feel these things that the Bible says I shouldn't feel. How can I be a Christian? What if I listen to that? Instead, what I should listen to is the objective truth that 2,000 years ago, a real historical person named Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, came, took on the form of a servant, lived a perfect life, never sinned, 33 years, never sinned, died on a cross, and on that day when he died on the cross, my salvation was paid for 2,000 years ago, before I was ever born before all of my family was ever born paid for that is the objective reality that's the objective truth brothers and sisters there are times when if I don't have that I am lost which is really every second of every day but I'm saying there are times when I feel lost and I have to go back to the gospel to remember oh yeah it doesn't depend on me my salvation is not dependent on me it's dependent on Christ. We cling, we hold fast to what is good. If we do not, we will be lost at sea without a GPS. Can you imagine? Out there in the Gulf, the Atlantic, no GPS, no, no sun to tell us where we are, just lost. And we start trying to go our own way. We start believing that our feelings become objective truth for us who knows what we what direction we head Christ like love is bold and the third thing is that Christ like love is competitive bet you didn't expect that it's competitive well look in the ESV we've been reading the NIV but the ESV says this in verse 10 love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor. Let's have the honor Olympics. That's what it's saying. So Paul has switched his word for love. Now he's on to, uh, instead of agape, he's on to philos. He's saying brotherly love. We love each other like a family, and hey, families are competitive. Backyard football, anyone? You know? Uh, front seat competitions, anybody ever have that with their siblings? Like, you know, fighting to the death over who gets the front seat? Um, but we're not meant to be competitive in a way where we are trying to, to win honor and glory for ourselves. We are meant to be competitive in a way where we are stumbling over ourselves to make another person look good. We are stumbling over ourselves to benefit another person. That's the kind of competition that Paul is talking about here. Some years ago, when we adopted our boys, Jennifer stumbled on this book called, uh, it's a parenting book, called Say Goodbye to Whining. It has some other subtitle. But it's been an awesome book for us because, you know, like I feel like parenting sometimes can just be like, if you made it through the day and your kids didn't get into a knife fight, you're like, that's awesome, I won, you know? But this is, I mean, that's, that's hallelujah if they didn't get into a knife fight. But that's a very passive outlook on parenting. This, this book presents a strategy where it's like, we want to teach kids to actively honor each other and actively honor other people. It's 
It's not a passive way to approach life. It is a very active, it's love in action. And that's what Paul's talking about here. We should actively pursue how we can lift up and encourage other people because this is what Jesus did for us and because this glorifies God. Imagine if our entire church was always looking out for ways that we can outdo each other in honor. Who can we, who can we honor today? Who has God placed on your heart to honor today, this morning, this week? Fourth point, Christ-like love is dedicated to and derived from Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Alright, so never lack zeal. Wow. I don't know about you, but there are definitely times when I'm lacking in zeal. Hard day, 9 o'clock at night, kids are finally in bed, I'm sitting on the couch. I am not zealous for anything. I just want to veg. It's impossible sometimes to produce zeal on our own. Some days we're lucky to get out of bed, right? But this is saying, I think this is giving us permission to admit once again that this is difficult, in fact, impossible without God. We can't be zealous or have spiritual fervor unless this is, this is produced in us by the love of Jesus Christ, unless we are connected to the vine. John 15, 4 and 5 says, Jesus says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It is only with a relationship with Jesus Christ that we can have the strength to love sacrificially. It is only if we are connected to the vine that we can have any kind of spiritual fervor, that we can have any kind of desire or passion to serve the Lord. If we're connected to the vine, if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we will produce spiritual fruit. We will serve. And we might even be zealous about it. We might even be passionate about how we love our neighbors. Fifth, Christ-like love thrives in any environment. Here's my E. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. If we know Jesus, we have, a, we have a, a connection to Him, we're on the vine, then we have a supernatural ability from Him, not from us, from Him, to be joyful in all circumstances. Notice that it says to be joyful in hope. That's not just to be joyful only when we have some kind of temporal hope. Like, yay, I, I'm so glad I have vacation next week or something. No, it's saying... We are always joyful because we always have a supernatural hope. We have a hope no matter what circumstances are going on around us. Our hope is God himself, that he is always with us and that he's gone before us and he's preparing a place for us. So I love this quote about joy from William Barclay. He says, Joy, which is contentment's inseparable companion, is the state of gladness that results from knowing that God is always in control. Do you know that God is always in control? If, if you know that, if you believe that, then you can always have joy. You can find out tomorrow that you have terminal cancer. You can find out tomorrow that you've lost your job. You can find out tomorrow that your spouse has left you. You can find out tomorrow that, I mean, 
fill in the blank. Think about it right now. What would be the worst thing that you can imagine happening to you? Fill in the blank. If you have God, if you know that he is in control, then you can have joy. I'm not talking about happiness. In fact, if any of those things happen, I'm not saying we should put on a happy face. And I'm not saying we should act like nothing's wrong. In fact, the Bible would say you should act like something's wrong. You should cry, you should grieve, you should mourn, because that's appropriate. We're recognizing we live in a fallen world. Even Jesus wept when Lazarus died, and Jesus knew he was about to raise him from the dead. So we mourn, but we don't lose hope. We can still have joy when we mourn, and we can be patient in affliction. If we know that we have Jesus Affliction is not the end of the world. In fact, it's expected. We're, we should expect to face affliction in this life. Jesus told us, some will hate you because of me. And Jesus actually shares in our affliction. Maybe that's the best part of this. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Jesus Christ. So the point is that if we have a relationship with Christ and we suffer, we also find the comfort of Christ, which, according to Paul, outweighs any suffering we can experience. And ultimately, what Paul says is that this leads us to be faithful in prayer. I confess that I am often not faithful in prayer. I, I hope in other things. I Is our hope in Jesus? Then we will pray with thanksgiving. Are we suffering? Then we will pray for mercy. Either way, knowing Jesus makes us prayerful people. Sixth thing, Christ-like love freely gives. So here's your F and then also your G. Verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. We're going to skip verse 14 and we're going to cover it next week. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Because of the love of Christ, we can be generous people. With people we know and with complete strangers. We can share our time, our skill, our money. Last week we talked about spiritual gifts, how God, is, God gives each Christian spiritual gifts where we're meant to use them in the church to share with other people and that we were all better when we are sharing together. So when we recognize that what we have, whether it's our time, whether it's our money, whether it's our gifts, we recognize that all belongs to God anyway, that it all comes from Him, then we can hold it out open-handed. But if we start to get into this place where we think, that's mine, I own that, I made that money, then we start to do this with it. We start to be stingy with it. Because we've stopped trusting God. We started to be anxious. And we started to, to face the reality, hey, I've got, a, I've got some limitations here. I'm not sure I'm going to get more of this. I'm not sure I'm going to get more money. I'm not sure I'm going to get more time. I better hold on to what I've got. That's what we get when we start to think, it's mine. I'm responsible for it. Instead, we need to look and see that it is God who provides everything we have. And, and so if we 
understand he owns it all anyway, then it becomes easier, and in fact, it becomes joyful to give back, to share, to say, yes, I can give my tithe, I can give my 10% to God, because he owns it anyway. It's already his. I'm just giving back to him, and I can do it cheerfully. If you have not taken that next step to see that God is good and how he provides, and God is good when we give back, I invite you to take that step of faith. How can you share? How can we be a more generous church? And look, this is not a promise that if we give more, that God's going to make it rain on us financially. That's not what this is saying. God doesn't actually even need our money. You realize that? Like, He's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish with or without us. What this is saying is that when we give, when we are generous, we get more of God. It is better to give than to receive. And this is true of hospitality as well. The Greek here uh, is philoxenia, which means stranger love. So don't think southern hospitality like, I'm going to have you all over for dinner, we're going to have some fried chicken, and we're going to enjoy a nice evening you know, in my very clean house. No! That's entertainment. Nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying that's not what Paul's talking about here. What he's talking about here is pursuing, inviting, and loving strangers. And this is the hospitality Jesus has shown to us. Christ-like love is to show hospitality. It's, you remember, when Jesus saved us, as Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could not have been more alien to Jesus Christ than when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He is perfect. He is holy. He is God. He is, he is life itself. We were spiritual corpses. And yet he came. He emptied himself. He loved us unconditionally. He suffered in our place. He died. That's the ultimate hospitality. That's stranger love to the core. And because he loves us that way, we are free to love others that way. We can rejoice with those who rejoice. We can mourn with those who mourn. In short, we can freely give of ourselves to be present with people. I've had the pleasure this past week of watching my son play baseball in the All-Star Tournament along with a couple other Westtown folks. And we had a really exciting tournament. Got to the championship game, down 3-1 to one in, the, in the bottom of the sixth, which is the last inning in Little League. And uh, our boys came back and won. I mean, we had a two outs, runners on first and second, this little boy steps up and rips a double into the gap, and it was just like pandemonium. I mean, we rejoiced together, and that was an easy way to rejoice, right? I mean, we just, I was hugging people I didn't know. That's stranger love right there. But I want you to think for a second about what it must have been like to be the other team. And they had it won. They had it won, and then all of a sudden, it's just ripped away from them. And they just, they had this look of disbelief on them, like, what just happened? Can you imagine feeling what they feel? Going, maybe, maybe, like, maybe I should have gone over there, or maybe not, I don't know. But maybe I should have gone over there and been like, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to mourn with you right now. Or what if they came and rejoiced with us? That's what Paul's talking about here. Can you match what another person is feeling, even if it's really hard for you to do so? 
Like we might have a tendency to get jealous when someone else is rejoicing, or we might have a tendency to be distant when someone's mourning because we're thinking about us. Can you stop thinking about, can I stop thinking about me and think about that other person? That's freely giving. The last thing is that Christ-like love is humble. Verse 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Look, this ties all of this together. What is needed for a community to live in harmony? It's humility. It's not pride. Pride is competition in the wrong way. It's trying to outdo one another in seeking our own kingdom. It's like, if you get in my way, I'm going to step on you so I can get what I need. That's pride. Paul says, do not be proud. Pride uses people. Pride doesn't love people. And pride especially uses people who are of a lower position. So Paul says again, be willing to associate with people of low position. This is, again, another example of Christ-like love at its core. Christ came and associated with those of a lower, a much lower position. He had to empty himself to come associate with us. So humility is the essence of Christ-like love. Where are you with humility? And remember, it's not like some kind of woe is me, self-pity, I'm terrible. That's not humility. That's false humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So let Romans 12 read you. Let Romans 12 inform you where in your heart there might still be pride lurking, where maybe you need to grow in humility. Maybe if you read Romans 12 and you're like, yes, I got this. Let me go out and show people how good I am at this. Well, maybe that is a sign that you have some self-righteousness lurking inside. Please take that to Jesus and see that his righteousness is all you need. Or maybe you read Romans 12 and you're like, I don't want to do this. I need attention. I can't give all this to other people. Maybe you have a self-centeredness issue. Maybe you need to take that to Jesus and see that his provision is all you need. Either way, this passage, look, it's not saying try harder at loving people. It's saying, first, love Jesus do you love Jesus? Do you know Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? Are you connected to the vine? Are you a branch on the vine bearing fruit by grace for Jesus Christ? You cannot do, I cannot do this. I cannot do Romans 12 without the love of Jesus Christ first filling me up. Come to Him. Come to Jesus before you do anything else find rest in him and find the grace with which he has loved us sacrificially and then let him show you how to do that with others let's pray